Okay, grab your Bibles and go to John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. We'll read that passage and then I'll pray. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Let's start there in verse 19. These are the words of God. And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Therefore they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we confess, along with John the Baptizer, that we are not, nor is any man, the Christ except the Son of God whom you have sent. We acknowledge in our day that many men wish themselves to be the Messiah, desiring to be seen as the great emancipator and provider and so on. And yet your word tells us that apart from the true Christ, we can do nothing. So we confess our inability and throw ourselves at your feet once again, finding ourselves in need of mercy. Help us to hear your word and proclaim your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we have come now to the fifth and the final week of our series and study of the prophets. You probably noticed that I didn't include the minor prophets, what's called the minor prophets in the Old Testament, the Tanakh. That is books like Hosea, Obadiah, and Joel, and so on. I didn't include them in this series because I'm hoping one day to maybe cover them in their own right. And Daniel is often considered as part of the major prophets as well. And so I didn't really include him in this series either because I'm hoping I've always wanted to preach through Daniel and I haven't uh, made room for that. So potentially that'll happen in the next maybe year. So that's why I didn't include Daniel. So we started with Elijah. If you remember, Elijah is the one. He is the representative of the prophetic tradition. He stands next to Moses during the transfiguration of Jesus and the two of them are the two key witnesses required in biblical law, these two witnesses to Christ, and they are the law and the prophets. And Jesus himself said that the law and the prophets speak of him. Uh, from there, we covered some of the major prophets, Isaiah, we talked about Isaiah and his life, Jeremiah as well, and Ezekiel, 
talking about their timeline, their history, some of the strange things that they did to woo the people of God back to covenant and so on. And tonight we're going to consider John the baptizer. And I say the baptizer and not the Baptist because uh, not to give too much credit to the Baptist denomination. (laughs) We can't really call him John the Presbyterian because it's not really Christian baptism, but that's okay. John the baptizer is probably a better, better word to use anyway. And you may be wondering, though, why would he be included in this series on the prophets? Why, why is he there? Well, because in Matthew 11, verses 9 through 11, Jesus actually considers John the baptizer, his cousin, he is his cousin, to be a prophet. Listen to these words from Matthew 11. And Jesus is speaking. But what did you go out to see? Speaking, Jesus speaking of John the baptizer. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before, the, before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom, Jesus says, of heaven is greater than he. So clearly Jesus viewed John the baptizer as a prophet, indeed even more than a prophet. He elevated his status. And why is that? Well, in just a few verses later, Jesus actually affirms, interestingly enough, because here in this text in John 1, John the baptizer denies being Elijah, but actually in Matthew 11, Jesus affirms that John is Elijah, And he's the one who Malachi predicted would be the forerunner to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. That's Malachi 4, verse 5. Now, many Jews believed that Elijah would return in physical form. Remember, Elijah did not die a normal death. He was carried away on the chariot of fire out of the sight of Elisha, his successor. So many Jews believed that Elijah would actually come and he would return in a physical manifestation of some sort. But here it's clear from the words of Jesus that, that the spirit or the mode of ministry of Elijah was fulfilled in John the baptizer. So no one, Jesus says, is greater than his cousin John. And they were cousins. You remember John the Baptist leaped in the womb when Mary, his aunt, came around. So John the baptizer, he marked the end of the Old Covenant era. The Old Covenant era ended in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And thus everyone, everyone who comes after John the baptizer is greater than he in the sense that they are going to receive more revelation than the old age had seen up until this point. So the glory of Christ to which John had pointed is now penetrating the world in a new way. And John the baptizer now has a front row seat to what's to come. John the baptizer, as we'll see, he had a very tough task. It's a he had a tough task, just like all the prophets had a, had a very tough task. However, we know, when, when one knows who he is and who knows, know, who knows uh, God and who God truly is, there, there's no question of obedience there. When you know who you are and you know who God is, we're going to come back to this, there's no question of obedience. You, you're just in that mode. Now, John was the greatest of the prophets because he got the privilege to introduce, he was able to introduce the Messiah to the world, and he suffered greatly because of his faithfulness. He was persecuted for righteousness' righteousness sake, and we thank God for John the baptizer. So let's consider our text here and examine what it is we can learn from the greatest of all the prophets. In John 1, we find 
that the relationship between Jesus and John is cosmic in nature. The relationship between Jesus and John, these two cousins, is cosmic in nature. Jesus is the word from the very beginning. Indeed, the text says that he existed before there was such a thing as the beginning. He's before all things. He was in the beginning with God, verse 2. Everything was made by the hand of Christ. He is the word of God. He spoke at creation. He is the vehicle through which the Father's will gets carried out into the world as the Father sends the Christ and the Spirit. So he, everything is made by his hand. He is the light that enters the world. And then in verses 6 through 8, we read this. John chapter 1, 6 through 8. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, because this is confusing, I want to explain this. John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John that we're reading right now, explains another John. And he explains how John the Baptizer isn't the light, but he had a role in pointing to the light. So the Baptizer was a was a sign telling everyone how to get to this Messiah light. John, think of it this way, John was the MC, Jesus is the main act. He was the pointer. He was the opening, he was opening the way for, for Jesus. In verse 19, we find that John the Baptizer gives witness and testimony to Jesus. Uh, the, the Pharisees, who uh, rather... Uh, you can just, the arrogance exudes from it here in verse 24. The Pharisees, we're told, are the ones who sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem. And they go to John the baptizer and they ask a most pressing question. Who are you? Who are you? And the language is emphatic. What is your, what is your deal? You can almost see them asking, like, what's your deal? Who is this guy? What do you have to say about yourself? Now, consider, though, their perspective. Consider the perspective of the religious leaders for a second. Here's a man who is probably influenced by the Essenes. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. The Essenes were like the separatist group. They're the ones that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. So John the Baptist was, was probably influenced by the Essene community. That's debated, though. Some scholars are, there's a debate on that. But the point is, John was a descendant of Aaron, the first the first high priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. He's the bro Aaron, remember, was the brother of Moses. He was the first priest in Israel. So John's working from that tradition. Consequently, John carried, he cared deeply about the things of God. John would have grown up and he would have dedicated his life from a very, very early age to living in the wilderness preparing for Yahweh's return to Zion, which the prophets of old had foretold. Now, while John was, was probably influenced, as I mentioned, by the Essenes, he, and they took great care to be ritually pure, to be eschatologically prepared. They knew something was happening, and they were waiting for this to happen. And there were some differences, but again, the scholars debate this. But the point is, here is a man of priestly descent living in the desert, eating locusts, dressing like Elijah, preaching like Elijah, demanding through very public and very drastic symbols, like being cleansed in the Jordan River, massive symbol. If you're a first century Jew and that's going on, you're, something's going on, right? And he's demanding through these symbols that Israel prepare themselves for God to act. 
So the religious leaders, what is going on here? What right, based on whose authority, did John have to lay such a bold claim on all of Israel? I mean, the arrogance, right? That's kind of where we're headed in our culture. Who, who are, how dare you call me to repentance for the sin of abortion or sodomy or any of these things? Like, how, who, on what authority can you do that? Well, the Word of God. Welcome to Epistemology 101, right? But based on what they're thinking, does John have the authority to claim that Israel is in a position of needing national repentance? What is so defunct about Israel's current leadership that they cannot deal with whatever it is he's talking about? Are things really that bad? When they asked, who are you? The leaders were essentially saying, what in the world is, who, do, who in the world does this guy think he is? Now, John is a witness. John the baptizer is a witness. The world is now on trial, and the Gospel of John actually provides the accusers, the accused, the evidence, the witnesses, and the judgments. Remember at the end of John, this issue with Pilate and Jesus and going back and this question of authority and kingdom? The world's on trial. Pilate represents the world. What's going to happen? That's the question that looms over the book. Now, the world we know from John 3, we know the famous verse John 3:16, but most people forget what comes after that. But the world is not condemned by Jesus, he says. And why? Because it's already condemned. It's already sinned against him. It's already co committed covenantal apostasy. So the world stands condemned. But Jesus plans to come and rescue it, and John the Baptist is called forth to prepare the people for that rescue. So the confusion about John's identity here in this passage, I think, is very, very important. The courtroom is set now, but who is this guy over here yelling from the back of the courtroom, telling people to repent and get ready for God to do something mighty? In response, who are you? John says, and, and he says, ego uk aimi ha Christos in Greek. It, it's an emphatic way. It means he's basically saying, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. The way, the way John answered them is an affirmation that while he's not the Messiah, sort of like what's underneath his emphatic statement, well, what's underneath it is, I'm not the Messiah, but guess what? You're going to have to deal with the Messiah very shortly. I am not, but he's coming anyway, so good luck stopping him. The, the ministry industrial complex of the day is going to have to deal with Jesus. Now, all Christians, I'm going to come back to this, but just note right now, all Christians must know that they are not the Christ and therefore must not try to rob God of his glory or try to usurp his power and his will, which means we have to be careful not to work against God which means we should know his word and so on. But I'm going to kind of touch on that in a bit. Now, John the baptizer, he is the ideal witness to Christ. If you could mimic your life after anybody, it should be him too. Don't, I mean, we all jump to the Sunday school answer. Who should you be like? Jesus. Yes, you should. But think about John the baptizer. He is the ideal Christian witness. He is the ideal witness to Christ. He's a courageous preacher who doesn't care about the authority establishment in Jerusalem. He is a, a missionary, he is an evangelist, and he's a prophet whose self-effacement before Christ elevates the person and work of Jesus, but giving no glory to man. In this section of scripture, we have three I am nots and three I ams. John proclaims that he is 
not the Messiah, verse 20. He also says that he is not Elijah, and he is not the prophet, verse 21. Remember, many Jews thought that not only would Elijah come, but also the prophet who was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, they believed that those two people would come. So there's a question. Who, who, who's the Messiah? He's got to be our political guy. You know, who's Elijah? We're, Elijah's coming back. We believe this. And then Moses said something in Deuteronomy 18, 15 about a prophet who would arise among you. These are all questions the Jews in the first century were thinking about. And John says that he's none of these. I'm not, I'm not any of those things. In John's mind, Jesus is probably all three of these because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20. So John knows his role. John, John the baptizer knows that he is not ultimate, but penultimate here. But who is he then? The religious reconnaissance needs to give the leaders back in Jerusalem something to go on in verse 22. What do you say about yourself? we got to go get a, give a report to the MIC back in Jerusalem because they need an answer. So who are you? So John affirms that he is three things. He's not three things, but now he is three things. And guess what he does? He goes to Scripture to prove his point. You're always safe going to Scripture. He is uh, epistemologically self-aware of his calling. He knows who he is. We should know who we are. He is, one, he's a voice in the wilderness, verse 23. He's not the voice. He is a voice, and even the mountains cry out. John points to the Messiah. He is a preacher about the Messiah. Making straight the way of the Lord comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And John sees himself as a trailblazer rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He's not the Lord. He is merely a voice. He's merely a voice. But they, but they say, well, why all the baptism and ablution, ablution, actually, this ceremonial cleansing stuff? What is that about? If they say you're not any of those things, well, what's with the water? What's with the talk of repentance stuff? Second, he is a voice in the wilderness. Second, John is a baptizer in water, verse 26. Because Israel must prepare herself. He's a baptizer with water. The prophets had predicted, you remember we talked about this with Ezekiel and Jeremiah especially, but the prophets had predicted that God would sprinkle on his people clean water so as to renew covenant. And John rightly, rightfully saw himself as, as the one who must prepare the way. So of course he's going to use water. We're supposed to be clean. We're not clean. We need clean to be clean, right? He's the one who's setting up the hall for the great banquet here. Things got to look right. We're preparing for something spectacular. The messianic banquet is coming. Israel, we know, was defiled and needed to be cleansed. That's why they were in exile. That's why they were scattered. So John took up the yoke of this great burden. So he's a voice. He's a baptizer of water, and third, he is unworthy. He says in verse 26 and 27, he is unworthy of the one who is to come, the one who they don't know. Now, compared to Jesus, John the baptizer isn't even worthy to be a slave. Someone who would take off the sandal and wash the feet, that was a slave's job, a bondservant. 
He's not even worthy to do that. He's, he, John thinks of himself as beneath the most lowly of people. Think of the most lowly person in society. Compared to Christ, we're lower than that. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Uh, John is humble. John the baptizer was a humble man. In verse 28, note this. We find the location of all this hullabaloo. It took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Note that. In Bethany beyond the Jordan. This is significant because it was the place where Israel first entered the promised land. And now that another Joshua is coming, Yeshua, Jesus, Israel can now be led into the true promised land. Now, according to Josephus, Josephus was a first century uh, Jewish historian. Josephus says that the placement of John's activity here in the wilderness at the Jordan is roughly the same place where John was executed by Herod, and it was a fortress named Machaerus. And this, the, when John died, we're, we're going to talk about that in a second, but John was put to death roughly around 30 to 32 AD. So just before Jesus' death. I would probably, there's debate on that, but if we take Jesus' death as April of AD 30, then probably John died maybe 28 or 29. But Josephus tells us that John was a very, very popular man during this time. Uh, Josephus even says that John the baptizer exuded virtue and righteousness and reverence toward God. So even Ju Josephus had honor for him, and it was indeed true. Now in verses 29 through 34, we find that the very next, very next day, Jesus came to be baptized. Now keep in mind, Christian baptism is completely different John's baptism efforts were ceremonial cleanliness, what we call ablution. Jesus takes on the Baptist, Baptist here, the baptism, as a federal head of a new Israel, and thus he identifies with the people he has come to rescue. Jesus didn't go because he was a sinner and needed to be cleansed. Jesus went because he is now the head of a new creation, a new Adam. He is the new Adam, and therefore he needed to be with his people. Jesus didn't get baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Christian baptism is different than that. This is a ceremonial washing. In fact, within the tabernacle and the temple, you had repetitive ceremonial washings that would take place. Priests constantly washing their hands. Uh, those who would come to make sacrifice in the outer courtyard would also wash. They needed to be cleansed. It signified their needed, needing to be forgiven of sin. So, John makes three confessions about Jesus. So he is not those three things. He is these three things. And now he says there are three things you need to know about Jesus. One, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus brings relief to the world that is burdened by sin. Second, he is, in some sense, a dove bearer who is baptized in the Holy Spirit, meaning that Jesus empowers his people, giving them the Holy Spirit. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, okay, 50 days from Resurrection Sunday. That was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on his people. And third, Jesus is the very Son of God. He is the prophet, priest, and the king. Jesus is royalty. Now, there is no confusion on the part of John the Baptist in verse 30. Make, look at verse 30. Another three things. There's a lot of three things in this text. The phrase, after me comes a man, speaks of the historical Jesus, the true humanity of Jesus. After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, too, speaks of the royalty of Jesus, the priority of Jesus, the, the messiahship of Jesus. 
And three, John says, for he existed before me. That speaks of the pre-existence of Jesus. And that highlights the true divinity of Jesus. He's fully God, fully man, and he is the task of being the Messiah. So as a prophet to Israel, the whole mission of John was, John the baptizer can be summed up as this. Who, what did John the baptizer do? It can be summed up as Israel's formal introduction to the Messiah. That's it. He introduced Israel to her Messiah. That was his job. He knew who he was. He knew who God was. And he knew what God was about to do. And that's what he, he did. Jesus is God's sin forgiver. Jesus is God's spirit giver. And he is God's son. And Israel is now called to deal with this reality. Now, you don't have to turn here, but Matthew 14 tells us about the death of John. When talking about the prophets, we, we dig into their life and talk about a little bit of who they were. And remember, Jeremiah wasn't uh, allowed to marry. Uh, Ezekiel's wife died as an illustration. <laughs> so th these guys had families. Isaiah had a wife and a couple of kids, at least two, maybe three. But here is John. Herod the Tetrarch, he had heard about Jesus. And some of Herod's servants thought that Jesus was a resurrected John the Baptist. So here's the backstory: Herod had arrested John the baptizer and put him in prison and probably imprisoned him for about two years. And he did this because John had told Herod that it wasn't right for him to take Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip, as a wife. So he took his brother's wife. And John the baptizer had the gall to say that's wrong. So if you ever want an excuse to scream and yell at a politician, this is your example. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said politicians should be so close enough to where we can kick them, and I agree with that. Now Herod wanted him dead, but the people regarded John as a prophet, so Herod hesitated. He hesitated to do anything with John the baptizer because he was so uh, influential in Israel. But on Herod's birthday, he had a party. And the daughter of Herodias, who was presumably Herod's niece, probably the daughter of his, of his new wife and his brother, <laughs> it's a mess, right? <laughs> it's a mess. But the daughter danced rather sensually before Herod and the attendees, and being pleased with her, Herod decided he would make a rash oath, promising to give her whatever she asked. What did she ask? Well, Herodias convinced her daughter to ask for John the baptizer's head on a platter. And Herod, not willing to be embarrassed in front of his guests because fear of man makes us stupid, Herod had John beheaded in prison and thus he followed through with his oath. And then the disciples, John's disciples, buried the body afterwards. That's the end of John's life. He comes, he ministers, he causes a stir, he points to Jesus and he dies. What do we learn about John? What can we learn? Well, disciples of Jesus need to know who they are and who they are not and how to communicate that to an unbelieving world. We have to know how to speak of Jesus, so we need to know who he is and what he's done, right? But we also need to know how to speak of ourselves. Because when we're preaching Christ, on, whether it's at a, a street corner or over coffee, whatever we're doing, we need to know who he is, we need to know who we are. We need to know our relationship to Jesus, the Messiah. But this cannot be done if humility is absent. We, this is why the, the dog and pony show church stuff is such nonsense. Because 
It's people who are lighting their pants on fire in front of a fog machine who don't know who they are and they definitely don't know who God is. We cannot speak soberly to an unbelieving world if there is confusion in our hearts, if there's duplicity in our minds, and pride embedded in both. And yet we are called to speak. We are called to speak to the world, to address the world. We are servants of the Word made flesh, and this incarnational Word is to be repeated, it is to be republished over and over and over again, and it is to be represented to the world. And all of us have been called to this ministry of the Word, using our gifts, using our talents to glorify God, to advance His kingdom. Which means that knowledge of God and self is crucial to this task. Now, John Calvin. John Calvin, in his magnum opus, The Institutes of Christian Religion, he writes this, rather profoundly, by the way. His whole first chapter deals with this, but this is, this is good. He says, It is evident that man never attains a true knowledge, a true self-knowledge, until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Let me say it again. It is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge. He's saying you don't know who you are unless and until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. If man only looks to the earth to discover self-knowledge, which this has been a problem for, for a long time. I mean, e even what's left of Christian bookstores, there's this self-help, self-discovery thing that's just leaving Christ and his word out of it. It's all over the place in popular humanist circles, too. This sort of, I need to discover who I really am, and you only look to yourself, or you look to, you know, Dr. Phil or Oprah. But if, if man only looks to the earth to discover self-knowledge, he will invariably find himself absolutizing some aspect of creation. Uh, he will search for anything and everything to give some sort of explanation to his, his existence. Think about today. There are people who still believe that we evolved from apes. <laughs> They're absolutizing some aspect, a historical progressive process. And that's where we came from. You know, our ancestors jumped out of a pond and became an ape, and here we are. And that's the explanation. They absolutize the biotic aspect of creation and the historical unfolding of that aspect. And, and that, that's creature worship. But that's what we do. We look to the world, the earth, to figure out who it is we are. So because of sin, this type of man will look anywhere and everywhere except heaven. And yet, as Calvin says, the only, the only real way to know yourself is to know God and to come down after such contemplation, Calvin says. And this is because knowledge of God is what we call revelatory in nature. God has revealed himself. The creational word, the ten words of creation became the, uh, uh, the ten words of the Ten Commandments. We have the creational word, we have the incarnate word of Jesus Christ, and, and we have the inscripturated word of, of the Bible. So all of that's true because knowledge of God is revelatory in character and it's not discovered by autonomous reason. You, you don't just discover yourself. You, man, man without Christ is lost in this world. And there are a lot of lost people that are, are finding anything and everything to explain who they are 
apart from the very word of God and the revelation we have in, uh, of God. Now, John the baptizer, I'm, I'm saying this because John the baptizer knew who he was because he knew who God was and is. There, there was no equivocation in his mouth. He knew who he was because he knew who God was. His ministry consisted of being an imbiber of the Spirit in order to soften the hearts of men as the Lamb of God comes to deal with sinners. Drink deeply of the Spirit, friends. Go to His Word. Drink deeply from it. And know that God is, is there to deal with us. Now John knew he was nothing special. He knew God well enough to know that, that man cannot possibly boast in himself. Sort of like the Apostle Paul's admonition. Pride, in John the Baptist's life, in his heart, pride had no foothold in his heart. None whatsoever. His position was one of complete self-abasement. Remember, this is the same man who said that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's our lives, right? That's it. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And listen, none of you will ever know yourself until you know God. You just won't know who you are unless you know God and who he's created you to be. That's half the problem with our culture today. Nobody knows who they are because they don't know who God is. You will not know God until you familiarize yourself with humility. And you will not know humility until you know your place in the world before the face of God. That's why it's called Pride Month. <laughs> Anything but humility. And no one, I repeat, no one knows his place in this world apart from knowing the greatness and holiness of God. The mission of the prophets, is, as we've seen the past few weeks, has been centered on one consistent theme. And that theme is the revelation of God and his word. God intervenes in the affairs of men to mess with their plans of grandeur. Look at the Tower of Babel. The prophets were tasked with the help of the Spirit with a worldwide mission of repentance and faith. John the baptizer understood his calling, repeating three times, I am not, I am not, I am not, and then saying three other times, I am, I am, I am. And church, listen, if we're going to see the sort of repentance that we wish to see here in Northern Virginia, we have to get this right. We have to know who we are and who we are not. And on top of that, we have to stand in the Word of God. We cannot compromise on the authority of Christ and His Word, no matter what. So when they come asking you, by what authority are you calling me to repent of my sexual sin? Don't you know what month it is? You say, by the authority of the living God and His Word. And you don't back down from it. Your life, your life, consists in knowing who God is and knowing who you are. It also consists in knowing who God is not as well as knowing who you are not. And you must expend your energies in pursuit of knowing the difference lest your pride inflate, inflate you and suffocate you. So what of Jesus? Well, Jesus, we're told in this text, is the high priest. He is the one who made atonement and removes sin. When, when, remember when Jesus told the paralyzed man to take up his bed and walk? Remember that? Jesus was actually in that action pointing to his ministry as the Lamb of God. Jesus took up the sin of the world and walked it to the cross, burying it in the tomb. And Jesus isn't our high priest, our great high priest and Savior, because he carries the weight and burden of our sin. That's not why he's the priest. 
No, he is our great high priest and savior because he does away with the sin completely and forever. And Jesus is also our great prophet. He's our great prophet. He speaks God's authoritative word revelation to a world that is disoriented and fixed inwardly on itself. Remember when he said, remember when he said to the oncoming mob who came to arrest him? He said, I am he. Ego, I mean, I, I am. I am he. John's gospel tells us that they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you remember that moment? Only John records that. When they come to arrest him, where is Jesus? I am he. They fall to the ground. We just gloss over that. Why did they fall to the ground? Of course they fall. Does not the power of Christ and, and the word of God cause all of creation to tremble at his very word? Friends, I get it. Like, whether it's family members or friends or just being out on the street or hanging out with somebody over coffee who's not a believer and you're talking to them and they're angry and frustrated about this. But here's the thing, like the word of God breaks the heart of sin and that's it. So don't stop doing the thing that God uses as a means to bring people to himself. Of course they fell down. Does not creation recognize his voice? He's our priest. He is definitely the prophet who speaks the truth of God. And Jesus is also our great king. And he has fashioned a new humanity and, a new, and he now governs over a new creation. Mary, if you remember in the garden, these are all from the Gospel of John, by the way. So the themes connect. But in chapter 20, Mary thought that Jesus was the gardener. And in fact, he is. He is that new Adam. He's King Adam II who rules and reigns as king and lord, prophet and priest over a creation that is now... Uh, that was definitely in need of new management. So church, we must know this Christ so we can know ourselves. Knowing God is essential to our calling, and we must know these things so that we can proclaim the cross and the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us never be confused about our task. What is our task? To summon the world to her Messiah. That's what prophets do, and that's what Christ has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word as we sit under its authority. I'm, I'm grateful for the treasures that we find here. And they are indeed treasures because they make sense of reality. They explain who you are and who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm grateful for that calling and that task. So Father, I pray that your spirit would implant that word in our hearts so that we can be obedient so that we can be faithful lord i pray that you would strengthen our church strengthen our families lord we, we see the the family being ripped to shreds in our world god would you spare us from that would we always drink deep from the fountain of grace knowing who we are knowing who christ is along the way. So may your word bless us richly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.